welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Okay, so a few quick notes and updates before we get to today's guest. The response to my response to Jordan Peterson fans, who were upset that I'd criticised him, the response to that was actually pretty good. Um, I received a lot of positive comments we, well, I mean, we lost a bunch of followers and subscribers and even some Patreons when I did publish the criticism of Jordan Peterson, but it appears that we've gained a different bunch of people since then, so welcome if you're joining the show from the Existential Comics series with Corey Mola, then welcome, and particularly big thank you. I've had another handful of people sponsor the show on Patreon, thank you so much for doing that. The, you know, we have no independent source of funding, so anyone who sponsors us that way is awesome. Thank you so much. And, yeah, so I guess we lost some people, we gained some people. All's well that ends well. Welcome to new people. I hope the people who left us, you know, will reconsider, but like I said in the introduction, I don't think I'm entitled to anyone's listening hours, much less their Patreon dollars. One quick correction I do want to make is a couple of people called me out on my statistics vis-a-vis witchcraft. So I talked about witch burnings in my introduction last time. Um, a few people have told me I got my facts wrong. I was always taught that the number of people killed for accusations of witchcraft was in the millions. Apparently that's an outdated figure. No modern historian believes that anymore. Very much in line with the theme of today's episode, the appropriate response here is epistemic humility. We just don't really know how many people died. There's a range that it might be as high as the hundreds of thousands, but I don't think anyone anymore thinks it's in the millions. Also, someone corrected me. I talked about witch burning. That did happen, but apparently by far and away, the most common method of execution was garroting or hanging. Nonetheless, I think the overall points I made there stand, and I stand by them. I've been threatening for a while to do an audience question and answer. I finally put that in the schedule, so that'll be coming in three weeks' time. Today's episode is going to be part of a two-parter, which I'll introduce in a second. After that, um, I'll give you my conversation with Glenn Lowry, which will actually follow on from some of the concerns we've been talking about about social justice. Glenn is a conservative who's critical of a lot of contemporary social justice movements, but unlike some of the conservatives I've been criticising, I think he's someone who really does make an effort to understand the opposing point of view. So I think you'll hear in that a civil discussion where we both are really making every effort to respond to the actual points made by the other person. So that'll be coming in three weeks. After that, I'll do my audience question and answer. So if you have any questions on anything, it doesn't have to be just social justice, that you want to see me take a crack at, you can send them to me on Facebook, Twitter, email me. After that, we'll get back to some more traditional political philosophy. Philip Pettit will be back on the podcast to talk about his latest book, The Birth of Ethics. We'll have Dr. Rupert Reed on to talk about Wittgenstein and language. And uh, Christian Miller, the author of The Character Gap, will be on to talk about that. And then going into the new year, we're going to be getting back to religion again. 
Adi Hamid, who any of you who listen to religion podcasts will probably be familiar with, is going to come on to talk about political Islam. And then Dale Martin, who you may be familiar with from my series with him, will also be back on. And we're going to cover gender and sexuality in the New Testament. So that's the schedule for the next few months that I finally got locked in. I'm really excited to bring you all of that. Before we get to any of that, though, I'm going to do a two-part series on the replication crisis, which is a hugely important and consequential field of study. So just to lead into this a bit, I did actually get um, some pretty thoughtful criticism of my last episode where we discussed implicit bias, and a lot of people wanted to point out to me the flaws in a lot of that, and a lot of people also recommended that I look at the replication crisis to get a general grounding for how unconfident we should be in a lot of the results of contemporary psychology. So I stand by, and we'll actually get into this in the second part of this episode, my view is that implicit bias is a real thing, but that view is based more on history and common sense than a specific read of statistics. But in the second part of this series, we will discuss exactly that issue, and I might say a few more words about it then. But for now, we're going to be discussing what is the replication crisis, why is it consequential, how did it come about, and what are its implications. To walk us through this really challenging area, my guest today is Brian Earp. Brian is Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University and the Hastings Center, and he's a research fellow at the Hero Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. His work is cross-disciplinary, focused in training in philosophy, cognitive science, psychology, history, and sociology of science and medicine and ethics. His research has been covered in Nature, Popular Science, The Chronicle of Higher Education, The Atlantic, New Scientist, and other major outlets. He's also been cited in the U.S. President's Commission on Bioethics in Grey Matters, Topics at the Intersection of Neuroscience, Ethics, and Society, and a landmark British High Court case by Sir James Mumby. So, without any further preamble, it is my pleasure to bring you Brian Earp. joined today by Brian Earp. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Great. So how do you describe the sorts of issues that you're interested in and you think about? Well, I kind of live at the interface of philosophy and psychology. And one way that that plays out is in philosophy of science issues that bring those fields together. So I work on a, a number of different topics, but uh, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of social science is one of the areas I've been uh, spending some more time in recently. Cool. So 
I've been wanting to have someone on for a little bit to talk about the replication crisis, which seems to me to be both interesting and important, both for academics and for just interested, concerned citizens in how we receive information in the world. So for people who haven't heard of this, in sort of broad terms, what what is this? What is the replication crisis? Sure. Well, uh, for a hundred and something years, people have had this idea that what makes science different from pseudoscience is that the findings are intersubjectively verifiable. And if you report something in your lab, I should be able to report the same thing in my lab. And it's only once that's happened a number of times that we're willing to say, okay, we have some sort of secure knowledge here. And uh, that was all well and good until science became kind of a professional endeavor where people's paychecks were on the line. And the career incentives sort of disincentivized doing the kind of replication that is, is supposed to be part of the self-correcting nature of science and uh, and what people see as being um, a, a, a way that science distinguishes itself from other, other ways of pursuing knowledge. And the way this works out is that if I have a limited amount of time and money to get tenure or uh, secure a good job somewhere, it's not going to be in my interest to spend a lot of time running an exact replication of your study. Uh, instead, I'm going to want to use my time and resources to try to get my own interesting finding into the literature so that I can build my own reputation. And for the longest time, people who did very, very close replications of others' work were seen as essentially engaging in bricklaying exercises. They weren't advancing the, the field. And so for both professional and uh, reputational reasons, uh, people more or less weren't doing these so-called exact or direct replications. What they would do are, are called conceptual replications. So let's say that you report something, and then I say, well, I don't want to do the exact same thing, but maybe I'll build on your finding. I'll change one of the measures or do it in a new population or something like that. And then let's say that I don't find something that's what I expected. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that I've provided evidence against your finding? Not necessarily, because I changed something. That's That was the whole point. So maybe I just did something wrong, or the fact that I changed something is responsible for this. And so if I don't get what I expected, I'm not going to get a publication out of this, nor am I going to really have good reason to doubt your finding. And so conceptual replication isn't good enough, as it were, for checking other people's uh, results, which was supposed to be the whole thing that science was about. So, so to summarize all this, it's that it's in everyone's interest that replications of this close or exact nature are happening on a regular basis, and yet it's not in any individual researcher's interest to actually be conducting these replications. And so as a consequence, they mostly weren't being done. Very recently, some researchers got together and said, well, what the hell, let's just try and do this. So they took a sample of some major studies in psychology journals, and it's been happening in some other fields as well. And they tried their best to run each of these studies one more time uh, in, in good faith to see if they could get the same result that had been published in, in these prestigious journals. And uh, one of these efforts showed a replication rate of something like 30 or 40 percent. So the idea was that the majority of findings in these major journals uh, couldn't be replicated once over. Now, there's, there's a lot we could say about how do you interpret, interpret the replications, but just as a rough first pass, and we should talk about that because it's not straightforward. Um, but as a first pass, the thought is we have good reason to think that probably more than half of the published literature, at least in psychology, but probably in other areas as well, that re have very similar problems going on. In fact, psychology has kind of taken the, the vanguard of reform and so in some ways is is cleaning up its house a lot a lot uh, more effectively than many other. It was where this bomb first detonated, right, when people realized 
arguably a majority of our stuff actually doesn't hold up. Psychology, I think, has been the epicenter of this discussion, partly because there's been this long insecurity among psychologists about, you know, are we really doing science? Is this a true science? Is this a hard science? In some ways, it's the hardest science because what psychologists study is a very complicated phenomena. Human are humans, and how our minds work are in some ways uh, harder to get a handle on than you know an, an atom or a star. Um, and so, psychology is really hard, um, and uh, and it's also been the the sort of central location where a lot of this discussion began. That's true. This started in psychology, and we're not talking. Um... This isn't like people who are postgrad just fooling around with some data. We're talking the main results in the most prestigious journals. More than half weren't holding up. What's within like philosophy, psychology, social sciences, those sorts of fields, what has been the, because I'm not inside of academic institutions, what's been the institutional reaction? Because this happened at least a few years ago now, right? The, um, this bomb went off. How have people received it? Is it something that people have been shocked by, or is it something that people sort of pretending isn't there? Well, there's been a range of responses. Uh, among uh, more senior and established researchers, uh, you saw, I think, greater resistance than among some younger researchers. So there's a bit of a generational divide. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, as I guess you could expect for something like this. Um, uh, you know, I think some amount of caution among these senior researchers is, of course, appropriate because it's easy to, uh, in the heat of the moment, think that because you ran an experiment and you didn't get the same results as what was published in a prestigious journal, that therefore you somehow refuted the original finding. And it's far more complicated than that. Right. Um, I'll, I'll, let me just put some of these qualifications in so we have them on the table, and then we can we can talk about you know what the response has been. But we should understand what it means to say that you know uh, each of these studies was one one run one more time and uh, the replication rate was thirty or forty percent. So. Uh, we have good reason to think that when a study is is published, uh, its its initial effect size is going to be overestimated, and the reason for this is some of these background conditions that make the replication crisis uh, happen in the first place, and that's that journals typically don't publish negative results. Uh, journals typically don't publish uh, results where the you know the p value is over 05, and we can talk about uh, all the issues about null hypothesis, significant testing, and p values, which is a whole headache as well. But what this means is that when you when you get a, a paper into a journal, it's not representative of all the experiments that have ever been run on that study. It's it's going to be something with a probably inflated or overestimated effect size and something with an artificially depressed p value. And that means that if you run any of these experiments one more time, just through regression to the mean it's likely that you're going to get a smaller effect size estimate and a larger p-value, and some proportion of them are, are going to be over the 0.05 threshold. But, but the thought that a p-value less than 0.05 was ever good evidence that there was an effect in the first place is not, is not a sort of strongly supported idea. And so getting a p-value that's over 0.05 and then suggesting somehow that's evidence against an effect is, is equally kind of level one thinking. That's not that's not necessarily a very good way of suggesting that we actually we haven't found something. And in any event, it's exactly what you'd expect. If you run uh, a set of experiments one more time that have been published in the literature that's already affected by um, overestimated effect sizes and artificially depressed p-values. So, so just to say, you, you have to run a study multiple times using very, very close methods for the p-value to begin to accrue meaning. It doesn't really mean anything in a one-shot game unless you know exactly 
how many instances of that study have been run, and you're correcting for the multiple comparisons. Um, so you need to you need to have uh, all the research published on that question, and you need to have it done iteratively by many different independent labs. And over time, if you regularly fail to get a p-value uh, uh, over 0.05, then you say that's probably there's something here. Um, but until that's been done, one or two or even three replications is still something where you should say, we're not sure what that means. We can maybe really nerd out on p-values. Um, before we get there, just to lock this in, because this is why this always seemed intuitive to me is I've only ever published one empirical study. It's, like, nowhere even close to, like, what what I've done with my life. But there's no way in hell I'd have even bothered trying to submit it if I got... Especially because what I was doing was quite speculative. Um, you know, without making it about me, I basically proposed that there was a, a, a meaningful relationship between how people use language and assign word meaning and what their political views are. So that's a bit out there, Right. Um, if I'd have done the study and I couldn't come up with any meaningful correlations, I'd have just went, you know, next thing, right? Um, and then, of course, though, that's no different for any senior person. And I don't think, like, the journal I submitted it to would have been particularly excited to be like, oh, well, we never considered this question, and it turns out it doesn't have an interesting answer. You know, I don't think people would have wanted to publish that. And so... There's also confirmation bias. When I was looking at my data, I wanted to find a correlation there. I, I was, I'd convinced myself beforehand that there was going to be one. I expected to find one, and I did. And then people have cited me all sorts of times being like, as, you know, buckle 2000 and... Oh, when was this? 2010, whatever. Said, um, dot, dot, dot. Like, no, I, my, my study didn't prove that. My study is suggestive of the fact that further research might be valuable here. And I almost like wanted to, I, I never did, but some of the people who cited be like, yo, I didn't quote unquote prove that. But then if you just map that up to all of academia, the fact that about half of them don't replicate and with all the qualifications you put on the table of what that replication is, that shouldn't be that surprising. But it seemed to it seemed to really take people off 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 guard. Right. So uh, one thing that's a common event is that somebody will have published a, a a study in a major journal, and so people start to look in that area. And there's there's usually a, an obvious next step that you might want to run. And so sometimes you might have twenty or thirty laboratories all working on roughly the same experiment. And so let's they all run their tests and they get their p-value. And let's say that most of them don't show some things that's, you know, by convention statistically significant. But let's say one of them does. Now, just because the number of experiments that have been run on this, you know that that one p-value is very likely to just be a type 1 error. It's, it's, it's probably a false alarm. But if they don't know about all the other labs that ran the same experiment and got negative results, they're just going to publish their results. We should say, probably... We should. This is a nerdy podcast. We should probably cash out p-value because even I probably don't have the super most yeah. technical knowledge of what, well, what this is. There's some some work on this kind of meta science sociological work that most scientists don't know what a p-value is, much less the general public, and they they think that it means something it doesn't mean. So here's here's technically what a p-value means. It says if the null hypothesis is true. And that could be defined any number of different ways, but typically the null hypothesis would be, for example, in your study, that there's no relationship between those variables. Um, it says, assuming that that's true, what is the probability of obtaining the data set that I got or data more extreme than this, um, assuming that all the assumptions of the model are, are accurate? Um, 
that's what the p-value means. Now, what people do is this kind of inference where they say, well, if the null hypothesis were true and there were only a 5% chance of obtaining my data, that seems like reasonable grounds for saying um, probably the null hypothesis isn't true. Uh, because if it had been true, um, my data would only happen 5% of the time. Now, first of all, it means that 5% of the time, you're going to get those data, even if there's no relationship. But that's, again, that's assuming that you're not having these other kinds of practices where, you know, you're running the experiment 20 times and seeing whether, you know, when the p-value slips below 0.05. Then the, the p-value doesn't mean anything. Uh, then, then it's certainly not saying that there was only a 5% the, the, chance. The, the, point, the point 0.5 point, though, so just to cash this in, uh, what, you, what, what this measure is telling you is essentially what are the odds that, say you've got, like, you know, a simple graph and the data cohere around a line, you've got a correlation, two two things seem to move together. What are the odds that that relationship arose by chance, that there is no underlying connection? So, but that's, like, that's, that's, not, that's not quite what it means. So no? that's, 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 that's always, okay, so correct me. Yeah, yeah so, so what it means is, um, if there is in fact no relationship, assuming that there is no relationship, um, how likely is it that, that, uh, 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 the data would appear this way or even m- more extreme toward the appearance of relationship if there really was no relationship. It sort of sounds like, um, you know, how likely is this to have happened by chance? And it doesn't quite have the same meaning as that. And this starts to, this starts what, to what's, matter. I'm, miss, I'm yeah. missing, okay, this, this might be a rabbit hole we need to go down, but what, I'm, missing, yeah. I'm missing the distinction here between chance and, uh, help, help me out, like I'm missing the distinction between what we both said. Well, um, anytime you're you're sampling from a population, mm. the data are going to appear in some distribution, and the the likeliest distribution, uh, if the null hypothesis is true, is one that's centered right around the null hypothesis. Oh. Uh, um, but you, you know, you're going to have multiple times where you get something that's not centered around the null hypothesis, even when the null hypothesis is true, just because uh, you have random variation and so forth. And so um, it just says, it, assuming that the null hypothesis is true, just how likely are, are these data or data more extreme than these? Um, I, you know, there might be a way of glossing that that says something like uh, there's uh, what is the chance that these data arose by chance? I mean, I, I'm not even sure I know what the meaning of that sentence is. What's no, it's probably, it probably just a clumsy construction on my part. Well, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe, there, maybe there's a way of glossing it where it kind of amounts to the same thing. But the reason well, well I mean, you, you, could, you yeah. could get a strong correlation arising with the null hypothesis being true of no correlation through just sometimes shit correlates with other shit and it's just because, you know, you could flip a coin uh, five times in a row and get heads every time and you could say that's by chance and it would appear that there's some underlying mechanic causing it to come up heads, but there's not. That's all I meant by that. Yeah. I mean, it It, 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 was an inexact. Getting heads five times in a row is one of the things that can happen when you flip a coin five times. It's very unlikely for it to happen. But it's, I mean, yeah, saying something happens by chance sort of seems like, I don't know, it happens by miracle or something. It's like, no, that's one of the things that can happen. And right. we can just estimate how likely it is that that would happen right, if right, right. this were a fair coin. Um, or if, you know, there were no relationship between things. Um, so if, if there is no relationship in the population, there might appear to be one in your sample. Right. Because you just happen to select things such that it looks that way. Um, and that can happen, you know, 
by the probability of P, how, you know, assuming that there's no relationship in the population and you've representatively sampled it and, 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 and. So to, so, so, so to bring this back to the initial replication crisis point is yeah. um, the P is that you're, we're taking as a sort of industry-wide measure this 0.5 p-value measure, which is essentially saying that... If everything else was perfect and everything else isn't perfect, and we're going to go back to that, there's like a one, 19 out of 20 chance that you're, you're actually observing a relationship. But that, of course, means that even with this being taken as the gold standard, there's still one in 20 times, even with everything else right, that um, that's not what you're looking at at all. And then even beyond that, that's with everything else holding. And once yeah. you factor in that the people producing that result want to find and are incentivized to find that result, it yeah. seems like that one in 20 is actually going to be much higher. Yeah, here's another way you can you can inflate the chance that you're, you're getting a, a false alarm. So let's say you get your data set and with a any data you, you visualize it and see what you're looking at. And let's say that you, ha you have a hunch that there's some outliers over here. Maybe some participants were asleep at the wheel and just weren't, you know, pressing the response time button in the way they should have. So you're obviously going to want to exclude those data because if they really are outliers, they're going to be dragging the mean over in their direction, despite not actually giving you meaningful information, um, depending on what your, your theory is and what exactly you're trying to test. I mean, maybe you want to know, but X percent of participants don't pay attention or something like that. So, for instance, in my study, I excluded yeah. people who didn't actually finish the fucking questionnaire because I just can't really use that data. But actually, yeah. they gave kind of different responses to people who did, and it would have changed my outcome if I included it. But then those sorts of decisions, I'm going to be at some level making them to get a result. I want it to end with a correlation. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. So let's say that you just decide that at a first pass, you're going to define outliers as anybody who responded three standard deviations outside the mean. And usually there's some paper back in the literature that you can cite where somebody did that. And so you can say, as so-and-so did in 1996, you know, uh, they defined an outlier this way and so did I. But let's say you do that and your p-value is, you know, 0.07 or something like that. Now, it was probably a, a perfectly reasonable decision, but you know the 0.07 is going to make it pretty unlikely that you're going to get this published. I mean, it should never have become a publication criterion. So the already things are very amiss that you would even have this thought, oh, it's 0.07, I won't get it published. That's a crazy thought. That Those shouldn't even be related to each other. Um, but but that's what you'll think. And then you might say, well, let's see, let's see what happens if we define an outlier as 2.5 standard deviations outside the mean. And you do that, and then you get a p-value 0.04, let's say. And all of a sudden you think, you're going to instantly convince yourself that that was a sensible decision. You'll think, well, yeah, I mean, now that I think about it, you know, when you look at the data, those those guys really do seem to be kind of far out there. And, you know, theoretically, and you come up with some story in your head. And it doesn't mean that you have to be nefarious or, or fraudulent or devious. In no, way. not at all. Just, just people, this is just economics 101. People respond to incentives. That's that's yeah. all. Um, well, to and, use, and, and, yeah. and they'll quickly, yeah, and quickly convince themselves that, that that was a reasonable thing to do. But the problem is if you, if you run multiple tests on the same set of data by excluding the outlier this way and then doing it that way. Again, what you're doing is you're artificially freezing the p-value when it happens to dance right below the 0.05 line. Whereas if, if, if you were to run this study under ideal conditions 100 different times, you know, you'd get a distribution of p-values and, and, and you wouldn't know which where the kind of true mean of p-values was unless you did all of that. So when you just 
artificially sample on the on the side that's lower than 0.05 and that's where you stop your you know outlier experimentation then that p-value just doesn't represent what the p-value is supposed to mean so let's stay on this point for a bit because I don't think people who haven't done data work realize how many choices, which, you know, a lot of these choices, you could argue the case both ways. So like you say, it's not nefarious, but how many choices you can make and how wildly different the bottom line result will be based on that. So to take an example that people will be familiar with, something like opinion polls of a political base, right? People imagine, oh, you just ask a thousand people, this is the end result. No, they will filter that result based on who's likely to vote, who's registered to vote. They also could say, you know, you did a correction where 60% of the people in your sample were men, but you know that's actually only going to be 49% of your voters. So you skew it that way. Any other demographic, you know, age, race, whatever, that might be out of line, you can skew it that way. Um, and you could have the same underlying sample of people. And depending what judgments you make about how to make that sample representative of who's actually going to turn out, it can be as big as like a 14% difference in terms yeah. of, you know, you could have, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And the the poll that gets reported is Hillary Clinton's up two points. But if you made one set of assumptions, you could end up with her seven points ahead. And if you made another set, you could end up with Donald Trump ten points ahead, just based on yeah. what you put into it. And it's no different if you're doing a psychology experiment or whatever, right? Or, or, or an experiment in chemistry or biology or medicine or anything. This is the thing, is that these sorts of, of what, are, what are, have come to be called researcher degrees of freedom exist in all sorts of areas. You know, you get your culture back from the lab or you're looking at the mouse brain or whatever it is. And there's always some decision you can make. Well, how should we clean this signal? You know, well, that, that's probably we want to correct for this and we want to control for that. The problem is if you, if you make these decisions post hoc after you've got your data set, they're all going to be wiggling toward the result you want, which is a finding, because otherwise you spent $1,000 on the study and you don't want to just throw it in the file drawer. And since it's, you know, wrongly the case that you won't get it published unless there is a significant finding, um, then you're going to do all these little decisions and and justify each one of them to yourself. And maybe even they could be justified in some sense. But if you if you uh, uh, run run enough tests on the same set of data, your, your p-value stops meaning anything and your chance of getting a, a type 1 error goes through the roof. So the, the one way that people are proposing to Correct for this a little bit, and this is this is a very very good step that should immediately be adopted, basically at all journals, is what's called pre-registration, and this is where you think very carefully about what you predict and why, which means you're going to have to sit before you collect data and really work through your theory harder than you you might if you were just going to throw a survey up online and see what happens, and then you say, you know, I'm going to run this statistical test at this alpha level, and the alpha level you choose, which is the sort of threshold blow which the p-value has to get before you're willing to reject your null hypothesis. Um, and again, you know, people are moving away from null hypothesis, significance testing, but it's still the, the prevailing paradigm. Um, you know, the alpha level you set should depend on a lot of factors. It shouldn't just be a conventional thing like 0.05. Just to give one example, if I'm testing a drug that, you know, is going to kill people if I'm wrong, I'm going to want to have a very, very small alpha uh, threshold because I don't want to sub- subject people to risk. But if I'm testing a safety device that if it works will save many lives, but if it doesn't work won't harm anyone, then I don't actually want to miss the signal, which means I want to I want to ha- you know uh, have a very high p value actually relative to that, not necessarily 05 maybe point you know 08 or 
0.10 um, because I wouldn't want to miss the signal. And so what, what alpha level you use is just something you have to kind of justify based on these kinds of cost-benefit analyses. But, but nobody does that. They basically just say, well, 0.05 because that's what we all do. Um, regardless of whether that's a sensible alpha level to use. But, but the point, point is... Whatever, 0.05 yeah. isn't a magic number. That's that's like not on a, a spectrum with 0.04 and 0.06. Like, it's just that's yeah, exactly. the point I mean, that we've if, decided if, on. If the null hypothesis were true and there there was a 5% chance of getting data this extreme or data more extreme, is that any more reason to reject the null hypothesis than if there were a 5.5% chance of getting these data or data more extreme? It's... it's, 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 it's utterly not any great, greater reason to do it because it's going to depend on your whole model and why it would matter and what would be the consequences of falsely accepting or rejecting an all hypothesis. So yeah, there's a paper somebody wrote, I think it's J- Jacob Cohen from I think the 70s, where it says God loves the 0.06 as much as the 0.05. Just, <laughs> just remind researchers that we had gotten into this ritualistic way of doing statistics where the all holy 0.05 just be through sheer convention and inertia, became established as the thing that we use to reject the null hypothesis, quite regardless of all these other factors that are what should be relevant for where you set your alpha level. So um, so the, the point about what pre-registration that I'm talking about is that you can get around a lot of these problems if you say in advance, this is the statistical test I'm going to run, this is the alpha level I'm going to use, this is how I'm going to define an outlier, these are exactly the grounds on which I'm going to exclude participants, so if they didn't complete the survey, for example, right, right, right. Um, blah, 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 and then you put that in a timestamped public register so that when you actually get your data, you're now handcuffed to your, your past decisions and you have zero wiggle room. You now are not allowed to say, oh, but then I defined it this way and I realized that maybe this. Now, some people say, oh, but that's going to prevent creativity. And, you know, sometimes you need to let the data speak to you and you don't, you don't know what you're going to find until you get the data. That's true. In which case, now you'll be able to run an exploratory analysis and everyone will know it's exploratory. So they know what to take your p-value with a grain of salt. The problem is what people used to do is they would collect some data, they have a pretty good idea of what they thought they were going to get, then they have all these researcher degrees of freedom, and then they, you know, wiggle around and wiggle around until they get the p-value, and then when they write up the paper, they pretend that that was the only test they ever ran. And and so that it was a confirmatory analysis based on some sort of strict a priori hypothesis when, you know, nine times out of ten, it was something that was, a, you know. It's a, 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 so easy to overrate your ability to, like, intuitively feel the data. I've looked at a lot of field data in my work from, like, political yeah. campaigns or donor databases or stuff like that. And you can really be like, yeah, I'm in touch with the data. I can just see when the data's wrong. And some, sometimes you can, but it's that one time yeah. when you were like, you you saw a you you just saw in the data that's off and you dug into it and something was and that one time you got it right feeds into this delusion that you're some sort of Dalai Lama of data and <laughs> yeah. it, it's just not true like sometimes we have good hunches sometimes we have bad hunches to map forward what you're saying to my example of political opinion polls, which is intuitive for me, it would be before you even hit the phones to call anyone, you're saying, this is how we're going to weight the data. We're going to discount non-likely voters this much. We're going to map so that we get a proportional representation of men, women, all these different constraints, whatever it is. But in advance, you know how you're going to massage the data. And then the data comes in, you do what you said, and if you get this bizarre result that's way out of whack of what everyone else is saying, you say, okay, well, this is the result we got. If I'm using my common sense, here's why I think this is off. But understand I'm coloring outside the lines here. But what tends to happen 
and yep. you, you can sort of see this actually in political opinion polling, is when people get that crazy result, they don't tell anyone, and they kind of just tweak a couple of things the other way so it reflects what everyone else is saying. And you see this in a poll opinion polling. Polls tend to cluster. You would expect 5% of the time, or whatever it is, that you get a result outside of that range. And you actually don't. You don't get really big outliers in opinion polling anywhere near as much as just um, probability would expect you to get because people bring them into the mean. But if the mean that you're tracking is in itself bad data, then you've just got the blind chasing the blind. And what it's you're a kind of a, a, a version of groupthink where essentially people go, oh, well, I don't know, I guess what I got was wrong, so I'm going to kind of nudge things toward uh, what that other guy said. Yeah. Yeah, and that seems to have, I mean, just to give you a really data point of why this matters, that does really seem to have been the case with the 2006 election. Well, it's not extreme. Like, the, the, the polls missed by about 2% on average, So, but 2% can be a winning margin, you know? And yeah. it was just people couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that Donald Trump could win just because, you know, he's Donald Trump, right? But right. but that's not data. That's not that's that's your intuition backfiring. And what you're saying is you can apply that to not only the social sciences, but the so-called hard sciences. That exact same process is carrying out. Yeah, and you know, often, of course, it is the case that a, a senior researcher with years of experience will, in a sense, know how to read the data. They'll just be able to know what sorts of things are relevant and so forth. But but the point is, even the most senior and seasoned researcher is subject to this kind of um, uh, exaggerated understanding of their own prognosticating abilities. And so the point is just that if if you've got such a good view of the data, you should be willing to put your money where your mouth is and publicly state, this is how I'm going to analyze the data. And then if the data come in and you sort of realize, oh, actually, we should have used a different questionnaire or, you know, something was wrong with that um, chemical agent we used or whatever. And, and you know, and you're using your your experienced uh, uh, perspective to, to draw this conclusion. That's fine. And then you can just put that in the exploratory section of the manuscript where you say after the data came in and we already ran our confirmatory test. We kind of thought maybe this other thing was going on, and so we're telling you about that, but we didn't, you know, we didn't know this in advance. And now everyone can take that and know what actually happened in your laboratory. And they can go, oh, okay, well, yeah, you're probably right about that, but we would have to, you know, run, run the experiment again before we put too much confidence in this alternative view that you raised, given that it's something that came to your mind after the fact. The, uh, other, the other big reform that you could put in place is publish, publish null hypothesis. Like, they don't have to, you know, if you've got a journal, you know, obviously you'll get the big write-ups for the major findings, but you could just have, like, a couple of pages at the end where, like, these were some other tests were, that were ran, they didn't really show anything, or, like, they, they don't, there's not enough data there to say anything really about them, we didn't get a significant p-value, make yeah. what you will of that. And then that's fun, because if you did want to study the relationship between X and Y, is chocolate good for your health or something... You could go, instead of being like, oh, no one's ever studied this before, you could be like, oh, well, people have studied it, and they haven't really found anything. Um, yeah. Let's look at those studies. What, you, know, you know what I mean? You'd have a starting point. Um, because yeah, I, I, it, it, I think we're coded to feel like no correlation is a failure, but actually that's still interesting data about the world. Yeah, if it's a well-designed study, negative results are potentially more interesting than positive results because it means, yeah, if, if there actually isn't something here and I expected there to be one based on all my theory and previous findings and so on, that's potentially interesting. The reason why journals didn't use to publish null results is because they were all printed on paper. 
And the thought was that if you run a study and kind of you get some sort of mess on the other end and you don't know how to interpret it, their thought is, why would I give you pages in my limited print journal to say, I'm not really sure what happened here. I don't know. It could be that there's no relationship or it could be that I just did a sloppy experiment. So, okay, well, if you don't know which one of those it is, I'm not interested in in your manuscript. And that's a perfectly sensible thing to say. But now we don't have page limitations. So first of all, the just the, the sheer limit of space shouldn't be a concern at all. We can put all this stuff online. Um, there still is a problem that people sometimes run sloppy experiments. Now, of course, if you run a sloppy experiment and you happen to get a p-value less than 05, that just ends up in the literature. So it's clearly not sloppiness of but, experiment. But the, the, whether the p-value lands on either side of the 0.5, stop me if I'm wrong, that's not evidence that you did or did not run a sloppy experiment. You can run a sloppy experiment and get a, a highly significant p-value. Yes. And you can run a great experiment and get a a mess that doesn't really seem to prove anything and vice versa. Like it's That's no, exactly, exactly yeah. it's, I, I, I can't think that it's any evidence at all for the degree of sloppiness of the experiment, what the P value happened to be um, because of all these background considerations that can shift around. So what's another kind of proposal that's been offered. And again, some journals are now picking this up, especially in psychology, again, credit to the field for uh, moving to the vanguard of reform uh, is, is something called in-principle acceptance, and so or or re- results-blind reviewing. So essentially what happens is you you write up your, your research plan, you write up the theory and the manuscript and the methods and everything except for you, you haven't collected the data yet. And you, you send that into the journal, and you say, hey, send your peer reviewers on this. And if the peer reviewers say, listen, that's a well-designed study, you know, Whichever way the results came out, that would that would tell us something, you know, given that this is, you know, we're affirming in advance that we think this would be a well-designed study and that the results would be meaningful. We're going to give you an in-principle acceptance, and then you just add your data to the file when it's ready, and we'll go ahead and publish it, whichever way the data came out, because then we'll have learned something. And so that sort of thing is a very good idea, and that should be done. There's also something about um, kind of the, the static nature of scientific papers where, you know, you have a, you, you publish a paper, it's there in a PDF file somewhere. And then let's say that you run a, you know, a, a close replication study and you publish it in some obscure journal that has a low ranking because nobody wants to publish your replication. Well, nobody's going to, they're not going to be associated anywhere. You're going to have to go trawling through the literature and hopefully somebody did a systematic review or they somehow stumbled across this paper. What should happen now is a, a, a scientific paper should be a living document where somebody says, I ran this experiment. And if somebody else runs an experiment, that just gets tacked right on the same uh, digital file. And so there's a, an initiative now, there's some versions of this, but one is called Curate Science that my colleague uh, Etienne Labelle has started up, and I'm sort of consulting on this project, where um, it's, it's a constantly updating sort of meta-analysis of every iteration of an experiment that's ever been done that anybody's heard of, even if it wasn't published. You can ha- have unpublished data, and you're supposed to submit the original code and submit the original data and these sorts of things. So these sorts of initiatives are helpful, and then you get, you know, you get a meta-analytic effect size that's meaningful. And um, the the other thing which I'm just thinking about now is people like citations. It, it sort of, instead of just especially in the social sciences, if I'm going to assert, um, I mean, let's just take my work, right? That there is a relationship between how people assign word meaning and their political views. People would, if someone's making any sort of argument to do with politics and language, you want to be able to say, not just I find it intuitively plausible that this, therefore this. You want to be able to say, as so-and-so has proven, citation, therefore I can continue with my process of argumentation. But if you read my fucking paper, at the end of it, I don't say I've proven this. I say, 
I, I didn't quite use this language, but I said, I want someone to try and replicate this. I said, what I says, this is a promising avenue for future research and like yeah. larger scale, better funded studies. We, we would want to see if this stands up in repeated tests across different populations, whatever. So I didn't claim it was a result. And I don't think the people citing me were disingenuous, but it's just like you want to cite someone as opposed to just saying, I find it plausible that X. You want to be able to say, so-and-so has proven X, even if that wasn't actually what the original author was claiming at all. Also, pretty much the word prove should just never be used in anything <laughs> outside, of, outside of mathematics and logic. I mean, it just shouldn't be used in these sciences. There's too many, too much room for error. You could say the evidence strongly suggests, or as far as we know, or get, you know, according to the available evidence, it seems very likely that. Those sorts of phrases are fine, but there is this rhetorical habit where people will say a common word is shown, which is softer than prove. So they'll say, as so-and-so has shown. And you just sort of get used to saying that. So you write the paper and you find this thing, you say, as so-and-so has shown. But what would it mean to show something? thing. Um, it, you know, it, providing evidence for something is not the same thing as showing it. Um, you know, providing evidence for something where your paper got published, but 10 other people ran the same experiment and their paper didn't get published, that's actually no evidence of, of, of the thing. So what you should say is, you know, um, so-and-so reported evidence that blah. And then maybe you scale your evidence according to whether there's there have been 20 studies on the same thing and they all point in the same direction and you're correcting for publication bias so you know there isn't some big file drawer full of failed studies somewhere. And the, and the point is we can't even do that with most stuff. There, there are very few findings where we know that the published literature is representative of what's been run on, on, on the topic, that the findings all point in the same way uh, and they have a large and reliable effect size, the mechanism is understood. I mean, if, if, if you want to say even shown, there's a very few things you should be able to say have been shown when you're working in a sort of frontier area of science. Pretty much nothing's been shown in these frontier areas. You have suggestive evidence that maybe it might be the case that future work should, you know, explore whether. Yeah. So let's, yeah. And also just like, don't you actually want to know what's really happening in the world? Or at least... I'll be epistemically less confident. Aren't you interested in forming your best guess as to what's really happening in the world? And it seems to me like you've got one paper showing a correlation. If they were like, like you say, four other papers in a desk drawer somewhere that never got published because they didn't, um, and didn't in spite of the fact that the people con writing those papers probably wanted to find a correlation, that would actually lean me to the view that there's probably nothing going on there. That, that's what that evidence would seem to be suggestive of to me. But if you're yeah. interested in what's actually happening in the world, don't you want that, you know? Yeah. Um, yes. I, I think there are huge epistemological implications for this. Just to take the example of psychology, this is a little bit too glib, but let's say that we're pretty sure that roughly half of the literature doesn't won't, won't necessarily replicate, or we're, we at least can't be sure of whether it will replicate. But the point is, we don't know which half. So right. that means we don't know anything. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Okay, so you've just you've just hit the nail on the head. We don't yeah. know anything. That, yeah, that's not I, too I, glib. Like we, if if you know that yeah. some meaningful yeah. percentage isn't standing up, but you don't know which side, then whether a result is true or not is just anyone's fucking guess, right? At this point, this is why this is a big deal. Yeah, I, I, I think that's basically right. There are some sort of sub-areas of different sciences that have very reliable results. Some of them are the ones where they butt up against reality all the time. So, like, cars do run. 
why do they run? You know, when you're working in engineering and stuff, it's like if it doesn't work, you can see it with your own damn eyes. And like, so okay, this 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 experiment replicates. Similarly, there's some areas of cognitive psychology dealing with like uh, visual processes, for example, where you get very large effect sizes because you're dealing with mechanical system that's pretty well understood. They actually have the sense of the mechanisms. It's when you start to move to areas like medicine or a lot of psychology where you never observe the thing. Like if I'm saying there's a there's a mental mechanism inside your head. And I'm now telling people about the structure of it based on these statistical inferences that I'm drawing from a non-representative sample of data of, you know, 30 undergraduates in Kansas. The point is, I, there's no thing in reality that's going to show me I'm wrong. All I ever had was a model, and all I ever had was statistical evidence in favor of that model that, that has all sorts of limitations baked into it. And so there isn't this constantly butting up against reality kind of thing where, uh, where you, can just, you, you can just see whether your your uh, your 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 idea is wrong, and so for that reason, given these replication issues and the research degrees of freedom and the publication bias and so forth, I think I, I you know I think it's really the case that if somebody says, you know, what about that famous thing in psychology that they showed with blah? My thought is like, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week will be the second part of this series, where we look at some of the applications of this and what it means for how we understand the world. As always, if you want to support the podcast, a few ways you can do that. Sharing is also always super useful, help get the word out there, help build our following. If you could leave positive reviews on iTunes, that helps us reach more people. And like I said at the beginning, this is an entirely listener-funded podcast. So if you want to sponsor us at any level, check out our Patreon page. It's Patreon stroke Political Philosophy Podcast. Or you can go to our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, and there you'll find the links to support, as well as to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, RSS, all that good stuff. So that's politicalphilosophypodcast.com has the links to all of that. As always, thank you so much for listening to the show. It genuinely means a lot that so many people tune in to check it out, and I hope you will join us again next week for part two. Bye.